Hey all, Coach Dennis here with the Endurance Project, and uh, today I wanted to talk to you guys about a few different things in terms of how to measure progression, but also how to train and adapt so that you can touch on all areas of economy and efficiency and how you can improve all this in order to become a better endurance athlete. So as we know, you know, there's some standard tests and standard um, units of measure, things that we test in training or, you know, as we prepare for a race, when you look at it from a, you know, scientific standpoint, you have VO2 max, things like that. And for years, that's kind of been the gold standard is to measure VO2 max and, you know, see what that number is. And for many years, it was thought that the higher the number that you could achieve for VO2 max, then the faster you'd be or the better potential you had as an endurance athlete. And while that is kind of true, VO2 max itself is very, it's just one small piece of the pie, so to speak. So, you know, if you don't know exactly what VO2 max is, basically what it is, is it's measuring the amount of oxygen in versus oxygen out. And it takes that ratio and It gives you an idea of how much oxygen your body can take in and process. But what it doesn't really do is give you a good understanding of where that goes after the fact. So let's think of it from the standpoint of, you know, the air intake on a vehicle, on a car, or a combustible engine. So you're taking in a lot of oxygen or a little amount, depending on, you know, how big your uh, aerobic engine is in this case. And then what do you do with that after the fact and how well can you process that? So the number itself is kind of arbitrary because all it does is tell us how much oxygen we can take in, but it doesn't really tell us how much we can send to the working muscles and to the rest of the body and the organs and everything. So that's where something like SMO2 comes into play. And that's something that is starting to take off with a lot of steam in terms of testing. And now that it can be done fairly easily and doesn't, you don't have to go to expensive labs like you used to in the past. Uh, you know, one of my good friends and fellow coaches, Kim Nadu, she started doing this testing with the Moxie sensor. So these basically you can, um, they basically strap or tape to any muscles or in the body. And what it does is it allows you to test, and sense the amount of oxygen your muscles can take in and how quick they can desaturate and saturate with oxygen depending on intensity levels. So this would be the perfect area where you can see and compare the two, VO2 max and SMO2, where you could actually see what happens when, let's say, you do have a big engine and you can take in a lot of oxygen but then how much of that is getting to your working muscles. So it doesn't do you a lot of good if you can take in a shit ton of oxygen, but not necessarily process it to your working muscles so that they can do their job. And this is where economy and efficiency comes into play, where a lot of people ignore or they don't necessarily ignore. They just don't know or they're not familiar with how to utilize this training or utilize the type of training necessary to improve these areas. So 
again, going back to using, uh, let's say a car, for example, if you had a big air filter and you could suck in all sorts of air, which is VO2 and oxygen, how much of that is going to translate into getting to the where it matters basically putting the that energy back into the drivetrain and the the power to ground which would be obviously your wheels to the uh, pavement and that's a very good comparison so let's say you produce a hundred uh, horsepower uh, by way of your vo2 max but you only can put 65 horsepower to your feet or the tires whatever you want to look at it, that analogy. So how much is wasted becomes the economy and the efficiency standpoint. And that's where a lot of athletes kind of either one, they don't know, they're completely ignorant on how to train for it, or they just do a lot of the wrong type of training or maybe too much, not necessarily the wrong type, let's say too much of one type of training over another. An example of this would be, so it's not too uncommon to see an athlete with a very high VO2 max. Let's take running, for instance, since that's what most people listening to this podcast are interested in. So if, you know, a runner comes in and I test them and with, you know, my Pinoy device, uh, because I do have a portable VO2 max testing uh, capability now. So if I test an athlete, let's say they're 70, which is really high, it's pretty, you know, pretty high up there. And they're just not producing anywhere near the running times that you would associate with something like a 70 VO2, then there has to be another limiting factor. And typically, I try to break it down into there's three sections. So there's three areas where you could be deficient. And it could be, you know, basically what you can, you know, oxygen in, which is your VO2. And then basically taking that same oxygen that you can breathe in and process and then putting it to work to the muscles and hopefully you know you can have a pretty good ratio there so as much as you're bringing in you can process and put out and that's the smo2 side of it so how much of what you breathe in how much you're processing can actually be applied to your pace and to your effort in terms of running and how do your muscles respond to that? And how well are they utilizing uh, the amount of oxygen in those muscles? Then there's the component that's kind of in between, or it could even be on the backside of the SMO2, and that's basically biomechanical economy or efficiency. Kind of the same, kind of the same term. It just depends how you look at it, but that is how well you can apply everything else in terms of beyond a cardiorespiratory standpoint and beyond, you know, utilization of uh, muscle oxygen saturation. And that becomes, you know, your power to ground. How much force and power can you apply to the ground in order to generate a faster pace or a longer stride rate or faster stride rate? And that becomes the mechanical component so these three things when all combined together is what's going to make the most efficient and fastest runner and for years it was always just 
VO2 was the the gold standard and that's what everybody went off of and just assumed automatically that if you had a super high VO2 max that you're going to be a really good runner or whatever it is that your modality is, cycling or anything else. But the problem is, is there's a lot of energy lost sometimes with the mechanical side of things or also with how well your muscles is utilizing that oxygen intake and how well it's distributing it throughout the rest of your body. So you could take two runners, for instance, and they could have the exact same VO2, and let's say everything else was equal. They were the same body weight, same height, same weight, everything. You could take those two athletes, and let's say they both had a VO2 max of 70, and they went out and ran a 5K. There could be completely different results. I mean, one could run a 15-minute 5K. One could run an 18-minute 5K you normally may not see that much disparity, but you can depending on whether those two athletes were both runners. But for this sake, let's say they both were lifelong runners and they didn't come from a different sport and you're comparing apples to apples, then the one athlete that's running the 15-minute 5K versus the 18-minute 5K obviously is very efficient elsewhere too. So he's not only able to take in a large amount of uh, volume in terms of oxygen, but he's also able to process it and get it to his muscles so that they can utilize it. And then he's also very likely to be very economical and, you know, biomechanically efficient. So this would be a perfect example of someone like a Iliad Kipkoji who, you know, broke two hours in the marathon, you know, world record holder in the marathon, basically has won every race he's ever uh, run. He is probably if you took averages of all three of those components he's got the highest average of all three and he may not be the highest on any one of the three but when you compare the three and you took uh, cumulative data from those three then he would most likely have the highest number if you were to create a chart he would have that highest number on the graph because he's very efficient obviously at taking in a large amount of oxygen, then processing it, and then also being super biomechanically efficient and sound that he can utilize all that. So this is where I think a lot of athletes go wrong in the sense that they're trying so hard to constantly improve VO2 or that's what they think they're improving, that's what they're wanting to improve, and it's hard to know unless you're measuring periodically every couple of months or whatever through a training cycle to know if you're even actually improving it at all but what a lot of athletes will do is they go very very hard all the time they'll do a lot of vo2 max type work which is pushing their you know vo2 max higher or that's what they're hoping they're doing but often the trade-off is that they lose economy and efficiency and another part of the economy side of things is how well you can actually utilize your energy stores. And this can either be fat or sugars, glycogen, and how well you're able to use them. And this is where a lot, like the, the lactic threshold and the aerobic threshold, uh, you know, terms start coming into play where, again, back to two athletes that had the same, you know, VO2 max and everything else being equal, if they were both running, say, a six-minute mile pace, what percentage of that VO2 max relative to their max heart rate 
would that six minute mile pace be? So to kind of paint a picture, let's say, again, they're both even across the board and everything, VO2 max, all that being said, at what pace does the more efficient runner hit their aerobic threshold versus the less efficient runner? So in that scenario, the less efficient runner is going to hit their aerobic threshold or their lactic threshold at a much lower heart rate. So the idea would be to want to be able to put out more effort and run a faster pace before you actually hit those thresholds. So if you hit those thresholds fairly early, now you're in the red zone. And if you're in the red zone quite a bit before the next guy running next to you, then you're doing a lot more work than he is despite putting out the same effort in terms of VO2 max. And then you're, that essentially translates to the fact that you're less efficient. So you're clearly not able to generate near the efficiency as he is. And over a short race, 5K or something like that, it may not be a big issue because you can gut it out and you can kind of push past those thresholds and you can just ride the line long enough to, to be fine. But when it starts coming into the longer durations, the marathons, half marathons even, and then obviously the ultras, then it's the whole other end of the spectrum. So that athlete is going to, without question, come out on top when you're having to try to ride the higher percentage of VO2 for a longer amount of time because they're a much more efficient athlete. So this is where... Again, a lot of times you'll see athletes either go they, they go on one end of the spectrum or the other. They either do way too much pure low-end aerobic work, everything slow, everything easy, everything underneath their aerobic threshold, and they get very, very efficient at that. And their efficiency is basically fat utilization, and they can use that fat storage so well. So they can truck along for hours and hours and days even, at that slow burn because what happens is your body can process the fat nice and easy. It uses oxygen. It isn't like deprived of oxygen yet. And the amount of ATP needed in order to maintain that effort or pace isn't much. So it's a slow drip. So you don't need to use that ATP as quickly in order to produce enough energy to support your effort and your pace. What happens is now as you start picking up that pace, you require way more ATP. And when you're requiring a a lot more ATP, then you're actually requiring more than what you can produce. So basically you start building a lot up, uh, building up a lot of uh, acidity, start building up a lot of negative ions in the blood. And eventually your body seizes up because it becomes too acidic and it can't process the ATP fast enough and it's just basically getting flooded it's like an engine getting flooded with too much gas you know you're supplying it with all the gas it needs and more but it can't process it fast enough and it can't keep up with the rate of flow so that's what's happening there and you'll see that at the low end spectrum of a a really good uh, seasoned ultra runner who has really you know got very efficient at their fat utilization and then on the other side of that you know, say a CrossFit athlete or a pure sprinter, 100-meter, you know, runner, they are so good at that high-end output and utilizing 
pretty much 100% glycogen stores. But the problem is, is that's fairly short-lived and you can only do it for certain durations of time before eventually your body starts breaking down because it just cannot maintain that efficiency and economy because the demands are too too strong basically you you just cannot support that kind of uh demands so that's the areas where a lot of athletes can work on and what i always try to do is at any given time no matter where we're at in the cycle is have my athletes working on trying to cover all ends of the spectrum so you have the low end very low end aerobic work which is basically your you know less than 70 less than 75 percent of your max heart rate and this is where you're working in a pure aerobic zone it's very easy if you were to measure it metabolically you're you're utilizing you know pretty much all if not all fat instead of glycogen for energy then you have the other extreme where you're going full anaerobic where you're using 100% glycogen and sugar stores and zero fat, but that's short duration and it can't be maintained for very long. And then on the middle end of the spec, you know, middle side of the spectrum, you are kind of walking that line. And this is where your uh, aerobic threshold or your lactic threshold, some of those terms get thrown in together and they kind of mean the same thing but are somewhat uh different depending on who's explaining them but for this particular uh scenario those thresholds are kind of the middle ground where you're riding that line so you're burning a higher ratio of fat for maybe a good majority of the workout let's say it's an hour-long workout and you're burning majority fat for let's say 60 70 percent of the workout and then as you your heart rate drifts and you start uh requiring more effort you're requiring a little bit more atp then you're starting to go above that threshold now you're you're riding up a little bit higher on uh, above that threshold so over time what happens is it allows you to get very good at raising the bar so to speak so over time the idea would be to raise that so that you're pushing that threshold higher and higher relative to your max heart rate so if right now you went out for a run and you hit your lactic threshold at say nine minute mile pace and a let's say it's 160 beats per minute heart rate and let's say it's 70 80 80 percent for you for instance the idea would be to over time as you get more fit bump that number up so maybe the heart rate stays at the same you know 80 percent or 160 beats per minute but what happens is you get faster so you go from nine minute mile pace down to 830 or eight and you're utilizing the same amount or even maybe less glycogen and you're bumping that number higher so it's taking you longer to get there before you actually start dipping into the higher percentages of glycogen over fats and that's ideally where some of the biggest gains can be made is bumping up your lactic threshold rather than trying to bump up your VO2 max, for instance. So if you can bump that number up, the lactic threshold, you're likely to have a lot better performance results and it's going to translate better to racing than it would 
by simply bumping up your VO2 because you can bump up your VO2 by doing very hard workouts, very high-intensity workouts, and you can bump up VO2 relatively quick. But what you may not have done is you may have not increased your lactic threshold at all. And in fact, sometimes you can actually lower it because your body starts regressing a bit and it's harder to recover from or recover from and it's taking a little bit more out of your body than what you'd like. So again, it's very important to understand all three of these components and not just one. And you know, I see so many athletes always pushing the envelope and always riding that line where they're well above their thresholds, their lactic and their aerobic thresholds, and they're way above that all the time. And typically when that happens, you'll see very quick results. And you'll, this is where athletes get very hungry. So they lick their chops, they see that they're progressing, they're getting faster, and they just keep applying more and more volume and more and more intensity. And eventually the dam breaks. You can only put in so much. You can only put in five gallons of water in a five-gallon bucket. You can't keep adding more in without it spilling out. And normally when the spilling out happens, it's an injury, it's regression. You basically start burning out and regressing in terms of fitness. So it's very important to walk, you know, walk that line carefully and not do too much for too long. You can do super saturation cycles where you hit it really hard for a couple weeks, boost that VO2 up, and then bring it back down so the body can recover. But the VO2 stays the same or very, very marginally, like maybe decreases, but not much. But what it does is it allows you to work on that lactic threshold and push that up a little higher. So when those numbers start coming together more, then that's where you really see huge gains because the lactic threshold is very important. VO2 max, while it's very important, it's the percentage of that VO2 max that you can maintain that's the most important and for how long. So, you know, you'll see some of these top end athletes. You know, I've seen results from Ryan Atkins, Lindsey Webster, those athletes, and they have really good VO2 maxes, don't get me wrong, but they're not off the charts incredible compared to some other athletes in the sport that are just as high or higher. But what I noticed when looking at their results is that they are able to operate at a much higher percentage of that VO2 max for a lot longer time. So for instance, and I don't have the data in front of me right now, but if I recall right, looking at um, Lindsay's, for instance, on some of the work she was doing, she was able to maintain like 88, 90% of VO2 max for 28 minutes or more in the test that she did. And so, and in some instances, I think I even saw her as high as like 92, 93% of VO2 max. So she was operating near her max levels, but was able to maintain it for a long period of time. And this is where that efficiency, economy, and everything else comes into play. So she's been able to, you know, if you were to measure all of her areas there that we mentioned earlier, her biomechanical efficiency, her VO2 max, her SMO2, she probably wouldn't score the highest in any one of those if you were to compare her against the other top 10 women in OCR. But if you were to take the average of all three, I would bet hers is substantially higher, which is why she does so much better than most other 
women across the board and the same with, you know, Ryan and some of the other athletes. So this is some of the things to think about and how you can work on this. So how do you apply this to your training yourself? The, again, the main important thing is to make sure that you're touching on all bases of training at any one given time. During a training cycle, you can be more on one end than the other, or you could be more middle of the road depending on what you're training for, depending on where you're at in your training cycle for the season. But the idea is to touch on all of these periodically throughout any training cycle and even over short mini blocks. So let's say you know, I do a lot of my training blocks with my athletes within you know, 12, 14-day cycles rather than just weekly cycles. And the idea is that we touch on all three of these at certain periods. So it might be, let's take a 14-week uh, mini cycle, for instance, and let's say the goal is to have two VO2 max workouts, you know, two lactic threshold workouts, two pure aerobic workouts for long durations, like a long, a long run per se, where we're working on, uh, you know, mitochondrial density. And we're also working on, uh, a bit of economy and aerobic efficiency, bumping up that, uh, fat utilization, those numbers and getting more efficient at burning fat rather than just glycogen. So, Let's say we we wanted to get two workouts of every one of those three throughout that 14-day cycle. Then it doesn't necessarily matter where it's at in that cycle. The idea is just to get all of them within that cycle. And, of course, you'd have your easy recovery days in there and maybe off days and strength days and whatnot. But the idea is to get all of those within that short time span. And then, again, the oversaturation saturation phases, you could look at – Let's say you took a 30-day window and you wanted to do a lot of VO2 work. So you did three or four, maybe five VO2 workouts, VO2 max workouts within each week for that one month. And you really pushed the envelope and you pushed yourself right to the razor's edge, but then you back off. And then you bring it back down, you work on some aerobic work, and then you bump it back up maybe to the middle road where you work on lactic threshold work, and then you bring them all together again. So these are types of ways that you can you know, touch on all of it all at the same time and not overload yourself with one or the other too much. And like I said, in the world of OCR or endurance running in any, you know, ultras, whatever it is, you either have the very end of the spectrum where everybody's going super hard all the time, putting in beast mode workouts every day and just trying to kill herself, or they're at the other end of the spectrum where they're just doing very, very low end aerobic and hardly ever doing anything to improve lactic threshold or VO2 max work or strength or anything else. They just get comfortable in that very low end aerobic. So we just all got to try to find what works best for us. But it's also nice if you can get testing, um, you know, VO2 max testing. If you're local here to me, Rhode Island, or even, you know, some of the times when I travel and I come to these races, I can do some testing for you guys. Um, But also there's, you know, a lot of places that do it. You can find most places that do it in your area, you know, universities, you know, different uh, running clinic stores or places like that. And then the SMO2 training, which is your testing, which is the Moxie sensors um, are portable now. So those can be done pretty easily. Like I said, my friend and fellow coach uh, Kim Nadu does it up here in Massachusetts. So she's kind of in the New England area. So if you're in the New England area and you wanted to 
hit us both up at the same time. We could do joint testing and we could test you with the VO2 max stuff as well as the SMO2 and design a program around that, the results. But if not, if you don't have access to the testing, you can get pretty close with just, you know, monitor, you know, using a heart rate monitor, getting really good at monitoring where your um, different ends of the spectrum are and then the balance in between and making sure that you're, you have a wide range of variety in your training, not just, you know, hammering one side or the other so that you're not deficient in one and too strong in the other. So you don't want to leave too much on the table on any, any one strength or weakness and take advantage of your strengths, obviously, but at the same time, make sure you're not, you don't have too many weaknesses and you're not leaving too much on the table by not working on those areas that can help you across the board because it's a big puzzle piece, exactly what it comes down to. And, you know, the puzzle's not complete until you put all the pieces into it. So it doesn't do you any good to get all the border done and then not have anything to fill up the middle or vice versa. So make sure that you're touching on all these and that you're working on all these simultaneously throughout a training cycle. And if you need any input or any more detail help with this, reach out to me. Um, obviously I do the coaching, but even if you just are looking for some guidance and help without signing up for the endurance project, then hit me up and I can walk you through a lot of this stuff and kind of help you identify where you need to be for any one, uh, area or all areas if you need to. And that's pretty much it. So hope you guys found some useful information here. And if you, like I said, if you need more help with that, let me know. And hope you guys all had a good Christmas and happy holidays and a good weekend this weekend going into the new year. And hope you guys kick ass and uh, have big goals for 2020. Peace out.